You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church or service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. We're going to, um, I'm just going to get straight into it today, is that right? We're going to go to uh, 1 Chronicles, okay, so it's in your Old Testament, 1 Chronicles, um, we're going to be around chapter 13. This looks scary on the screen because it says 13 to 16, that's not verses, that's chapters. But that's alright, because God's in this and he's going to lead us through this. You know, I'm uh, I'm completely inadequate to the task, and and it's such a joy to admit that, because I need the Holy Spirit to come and and anoint these words that I'll speak now so that they are relevant for you and for me, so that they speak into our hearts. I believe God's given me a message today for this church, uh, and I I believe that we, we can hold judgment until the end of the message and see, but I believe this is a really important message for us. Um, now, A.W. Tozer wrote a book a few years back, quite a few years back, and it was about the missing jewel in the church, and, and his question, or his thesis, was that worship had become the missing jewel in the church. And I wonder, I mean, that was years ago. I wonder what we would say the missing jewel would be today. Perhaps prayer is the missing jewel. You know, we could say the prayer meeting, not in this church, but generally is the least attended prayer meeting, and often the first meeting to fall off of the agenda in churches. So is prayer the missing jewel? Is it fasting? Maybe we've only done that once as a church in the year that I've been here, we've only done that once. Maybe that's the missing jewel. Or is it solid, good teaching? Is it social activism? Is that the missing jewel of the church? Actually getting out there and and being God's hands and feet to the poor. Is it love? <coughs> is that the missing jewel of the church? Have we become so familiar with doing things well that we forget to do things with love? Mm. Well, actually, I really, as I was praying about this this week, and I did not plan this message until this week, I deliberately kept the, the today clear because I wanted to hear God through the week and then believe that he's got a message for this season. I believe it's fear of the Lord. It's the missing jewel. A jewel is beautiful. A jewel is valuable. A, a jewel can be dug into. You, you have to go finding a jewel. You can't just, well, you can just go down to Goldman Sachs or whatever and you can go buy yourself a nice. Is that a jewel, Liz? Did I just make that up? <laughs> I just made that sound like a jewel. <laughs> you can go and buy a jewel, but actually, the, the, the history of that jewel is somebody's gone and dug it up and then chipped away at it. Uh, and then polished it to make it beautiful. And maybe there's something about this in the fear of the Lord that we need to dig for. The digging is messy, it's dirty, it's uncomfortable, it's sweaty kind of work. And then after you dig up the jewel, maybe then you've got to spend time refining it and chipping away and trying to get to the jewel within all the elements that encrust it. And then when you've done that, perhaps you've got to polish that jewel. And the fear of the Lord is the missing jewel of the church, and I believe in its place is flippancy. If I have no fear of the Lord, then my view of him 
is deficient. If I have no fear of the Lord, my view of him is too small. And it's likely that I don't care. Or perhaps it, my view of God is too suited to the view that I want him to be. That I try to fit God into who I want God to be, my pocket God. God equals provider, but not proprietor. Servant rather than saviour, lawyer rather than lord. Lamp to rub rather than lamp to my feet. Sometimes we, we come to God and we say, grant my way rather than reveal yours. We don't like the concept of fear when it's applied to God. Surely fear's bad. Fear's something that we, we, we pray for against it for our kids. We don't want them to have night terrors. We don't want them to be afraid of people that they see. We don't want them to grow up intimidated. We don't want to be intimidated. We see bad fathers who dominate. And we, we won't apply that to God. We want prophetic words to encourage. But we're not prepared to have the prophetic words that dig into the challenge of our hearts. And really, if you look at the weight of prophecy in the Bible, Old and New Testament, the amount of times that a word from God comes, and it comes like a sharp sword, rather than a pat on the back. You read the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus, loving Jesus, who looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, says, I'm going to chew you up and spit you out of my mouth. And, and he says, you've lost your first love, so repent. And he says, you're neither hot nor cold, I wish you were one or the other, but you're lukewarm. The same Jesus says things that cut the heart. And we're not comfortable with it. But doesn't the Bible repeatedly say, do not fear? Yeah. In Genesis 15, 5, God says to Abraham, do not be afraid. I'm your shield and your great reward. Now, if all the promises in God are yes and amen, then that's true for you. So, so God is saying to you, do not be afraid. I'm your shield and your great reward. So we have to divide this properly this morning. I don't want you to leave here thinking that fear is something we need to go and tremble and like be terrified of God uh, and have this servitude kind of attitude towards him. I will be good to you, God, because I'm afraid that you're going to beat me down if I'm not. That's not how we want to leave here. But clearly there is something about the fear of the Lord that we often overlook or miss or we're not comfortable with. I'm not comfortable with it either. And, and so we need to look into that. He says to Joshua in, in Joshua 1, 6, be strong and courageous. And then in verse 10 he says, do not be terrified or discouraged for the Lord will be with you. And God's word to you today promises, yes and amen, uh, for you not to be discouraged, not to be terrified, terrified, but to know that he, the Lord God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, is with you. Jesus repeatedly says, do not fear. Mm -hmm. Doesn't he? Yeah. 
But I think we can start to understand what's going on here when we look at what Jesus says. He says things like, do not fear what you will eat or what you will wear. He says things like, do not fear man who can kill the body but not the soul. Instead, see Jesus does say do not fear, but he says instead, fear God, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who has the power to destroy body and soul. Yeah. Yeah. So we fear God, but surely that doesn't mean to be afraid of God. There's over 300 references in the Bible about fearing God. Over 300 about coming before him in reverence and fear. And you'll never find Jesus or any other angel or prophet saying, do not fear God. Never. Hmm. Never. Jesus says to John in Revelation 1, do not be afraid. But he doesn't say, do not fear. He says, do not be afraid. Here's the thing, every time God appears in the Bible, manifest in presence, here in the room. You look at what happens to people when he does. Moses at the burning bush turns his face away because he just can't bear to look at the glory of God because he's afraid. And up the mountain, when God allows Moses access to him, he won't allow the rest of Israel that same access because they will die if they move into the presence of God. That's pretty terrifying to me. That's pretty fear-inducing to me. God is so great that he would burn us up if he manifests his presence fully in front of us as we stand simple people. And even when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face has to be veiled because the glory of God is so, so strong, reflected in his face. Just by standing in God's presence, his face has changed and become radiant. When Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God, his response isn't, wow, this is cool. Isn't God amazing today? His response is, woe is me. I'm completely undone. He realises in that instant that he should not be where he is. I'm a sinful man, a man of unclean lips. And to stay there in God's presence, he needs a coal taken from the fire and placed upon his lips as a sign of purifying what he says. Why just his lips? Because Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our lips are a gateway to what's really going on inside here. And so for for the angel to come over and touch his lips, with the coal, is to cleanse the whole man. It's to cleanse the whole person. And then John, when he has this revelation of Jesus on the island of Patmos, he sees Jesus, and it says he falls down as though dead. 
before him. Terrifying. Terrifying. In the Bible, Genesis 1, Adam, where are you? I hid God because I was afraid. I was afraid of my nakedness. I was afraid of my shame. When we hear God walking in the garden, we become very quickly aware. How do you know God is in the room? Well, he's always in the room. But how do you know his presence is heavy? It's because you say, woe is me. It's because you realize, my shame is massive here, God. Uh, I, what we want to do is hide. And the, the, the amount of times this week I found myself on my face. In fact, Monday night, the first 15 minutes, I was bawling my eyes out right here, face down. Because the heaviness of the presence of God was in the room. And I was in fear of God at that point. Now, that doesn't mean that I was afraid that God was going to come take my life away in that moment because of my sin and my shame. But there was a reverent respect and awe at his presence here. And it forced me to my knees. Uh, Have you ever had that feeling that you just can't get low enough? The amazing thing is that when John's on the floor lying down there and Jesus says, do not be afraid, it's me. It's the same words that he says when, when the disciples see him walking out just across the lake, you know. But that would freak me out. <laughs> you know, here I am, you know, there's a big storm and I'm trying to get across the lake and there's a guy walking on the water towards me and he looks like a ghost. Who, who is this man? They rightly say, who is this man? Who is just jauntily walking out here like it's a Sunday afternoon stroll and he's walking across these waves. And he says, don't be afraid, it's me. Hey guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's the mercy of God that is seen and the compassion of God that is seen when he says, do not be afraid because he's the only, the only one for whom we should be afraid. But a loving God won't hurt me, will he? Surely, a loving God wouldn't hurt me. Listen to this, Cain banished. The world flooded. Sodom destroyed. Yeah. Achan's entire family and animals wiped out. Yeah. Oh yeah, but that's all Old Testament stuff. Herod worms. He, he, he doesn't deny it when somebody says, oh, this man's speaking so well, it's like hearing a God. And he doesn't say, no, no, don't be silly, I'm not God. And instantly he's struck down and he's eaten by worms. Okay, so he wasn't a believer. Surely God wouldn't hurt a believer. Two names. Ananias. Sapphira. And we'll come to those in a few weeks' time as we look at Acts. Work out in fear and trembling. Your salvation. In other words, take it seriously. Take God seriously. I'm not afraid of a lion if I've got the lion in a cage. If we've got the lion of Judah in a cage of our own religion, in a cage of our own 
decision on what we want God to look like, then we've got no reason to fear that lion. Because he's caged up, he's bound up, but if we let him loose, let the lion roar, that's the lion that I'm afraid of. It's not comfy, is it? Listen, I'm not afraid that God is a cruel tyrant, because he's not. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid that, that God's just going to do something just because he can, and because I'm tiny and he doesn't really care. No, because that's not the God that we see revealed in the Bible. From the very beginning, you see what happens. Adam and Eve do exactly what he tells them not to do. And he hasn't just told them not to do it because that apple's his apple and he wants to keep that apple for himself. And that tree, that fruit that's there, that's my tree. Leave that tree alone. You scrumpy over there in your own tree. That's, that's not it. What he's saying is, if you touch that tree, you will die because that tree contains fruit that makes you more like me and you can't handle that. And they do the exact thing that he asks them not to do. He hasn't asked them not to do it like because he's selfish. He's asked them not to do it because he loves them, because he cares for them, because he delights in them and wants to protect them. That's why he says, don't touch that. And yet they touch it. And at this point, God could just say, that's it. Crush Adam and Eve. But he doesn't crush them. What does he crush? The serpent's head. Because he knows what's really going on here. There's a battle taking place. What does God do in that garden right there? This is the God that we should fear because he can just say enough. But what he does is he takes an animal, because there has to be death at this point, and he kills that animal, and he uses it to make clothes to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. That's the God that you serve. We should fear him because he has the power and the authority and the splendor and the majesty. But this same God, who can, is the only one who should evoke that kind of fear, comes not as a tyrant, but as a father. I'll tell you what I'm afraid of about God. I'm afraid that he is perfect justice. I'm afraid of that. Perfect sovereignty. Perfect goodness. I'm afraid of that. Because what perfect justice means is that however close I get, it's just it's not good enough. Perfect goodness, however good I am, not good enough. His justice outweighs my own. Some of you in here have a real strong sense of justice, a hatred of injustice. That's a God-implanted thing, even if you don't know God, that's a God-implanted thing. I'm afraid that in his presence nothing is hidden. I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid that if God fully manifested himself in this room right now and laid bare before all of you everything that I've thought or done or said, I'm afraid that that would completely change 
how you will see me. But that's nothing compared to how afraid I am that God sees that already. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you, I'm afraid that if he's speaking and I'm not listening, then I'm headed for disaster. This is going to end well, by the way. <laughs> if you want to know God, you've got to know as much as you can of him, all the sides and all the attributes. If, I'm, if you think I'm saying something incorrect, then filter that. But, but God is so vast. And actually scripture reveals this God. Go, go to 1 Chronicles and we'll just get into this uh, briefly. Uh, chapter 13. And I'll just start reading. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of his thousands and the commanders of his hundreds. So he went to his leaderships first. And he said, uh, then he said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it's the will of God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their own towns and pasture lands, and come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to this because, get this, underline this, it seemed right to all of the people. So, pause there. Here's David. Saul's dead. David's crowned king. And he says, look, during the entire time of Saul's reign, the ark wasn't consulted. God's presence, that's what the ark represents. God's presence with his people right there, physically. Uh, and so David's like, we need to correct that. Good, David. Well done. So what he does is he gathers his leaders and goes, hey, we need to correct this. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then he goes to all the people. So he gets his church, if you like. He gets his nation and he says, hey, guys, we really feel that we should correct this issue. So what do you think? Yeah, that seems right to us. It seems right. And so what do they do? I'm going to paraphrase the next bit for you. They get the ark of God. And even though God's given very specific instruction in the past on how that ark is to be carried among the people, they put it on the cart that will be pulled by an ox. I wonder what the modern day equivalent of that would be. Where we, we take the presence of God so flippantly. This is the, the demonstration of God with us. Now we have a different demonstration, a different ark these days. And that ark is Jesus. Because he is the one who carries the manifest presence of, of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus becomes the ark in flesh. He lives and breathes among us. So it's the same now in this church, right at this moment. It is as if we had that physical ark to represent God's presence. Because now we have the risen Lord Jesus, to represent the presence of God in this room and in our hearts and our lives. And eventually they build this big tabernacle to put the ark in because they think, why, why would God live in a tent when I live in a palace? 
And so they create, rightly, this, this great palace to put God in, this temple to put him in and to honour him. And these days, that temple is made out of living stones, and those living stones are you and I. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Spirit of Jesus is in here that makes you the temple of God. So I wonder what it looks like in today's day and age to treat the presence of God like chucking it on a cart and getting a cow to pull it. I'm not going to speculate that. And then, as this is going along, this rickety old cart, it goes across a threshing floor where they tread grain, and, and as it's going over there, it might have hit a stone or, or something, or gone over a bump, because if you've been to Nazareth Village, you've seen some threshing floors, they're not exactly the most even things, it's not like this nicely carpeted room. Uh, and as, as it's going over there, the, the cart sort of dags and tips, and it looks like the Ark of God is going to fall off. And so this young guy, Uzzah, who cares about the presence of God, just does what most of us would want to do. Put our hand out and study the Ark, and he dies instantly. Mm-hmm. There's a God worthy of fearing. Now, I don't want to just skip over that and go, well, sucks to be Uzzah. <laughs> And I will go into this in more depth when we get to Ananias and Sapphira in a couple of weeks' time. But the thing is, it was already doomed to destruction because they were already doing this thing so flippantly. And really, it's as if David, because of his decision to just do his own thing, was the one who killed Uzzah because he put him in a position that he shouldn't have been in. On a day that he shouldn't have been there, doing a thing that he shouldn't have been doing. Yeah. You know, as a, as a church, how disastrous would it be if I said, hey leadership, come here. This is my thinking. Does this seem right to you? Yeah, that seems right to us. Okay, let's do that. Hang on a minute. What does God say? I'm going to carry on paraphrasing the next bit because David, if you read on here, he gets really ticked off with God at this point. He's angry because he's arrogantly thinking that he's doing God a favour, that he's bringing God's presence here. And I've done that before in church. I've tried to do God a favour by doing something to make his presence more powerful in the room. I'm thankful that God hasn't just (laughs) exploded me. (coughs) I'm so thankful. And that's his mercy and that's his kindness. But I've done the same thing. I've touched the ark. And I've decided, let's pop the ark on a car. Let's take the presence of God and let's deal with it flippantly. He's ticked off with God, but he's also afraid. And this is the first mention of this. David fears God. And you see what happens if you go on to chapter 14, verse 8. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they went up full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went out to meet them. Now the Philistines had come and raided the valley of Rephaim, uh, so David inquired of God. You see that? This is different this time. David inquired of God, and, and he says, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will, your, uh, will you hand them over to me? And God says, yeah, go do it. That's exactly what's going to happen. Thank you for asking. Go do what you've just asked. 
And David goes, he takes his armies out, and it's a massive rout. They defeat these Philistines. But the Philistines come back and attack again. Now, in my thinking, I'm going, okay, Philistines attack, that happened a few weeks ago, what did we do? Okay, we did that, let's do that again. Boom. What seems right. But what David does, and what we should all do every time, is he gets on his feet, uh, on his knees before the God that he fears, and says, what should I do this time, God? Mm-hmm. And God changes it this time. He doesn't say, just go up and hit them head on. He says, no, 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 wait. Until you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees. This is like a supernatural thing going on here. And God says, when you hear that, that's your cue. Then you do it, because you'll know that I've won the battle for you. And so David, again, does what God says. And then jump on again to chapter 15, and I'll just paraphrase some of this, just somehow. Because David decides again, it's right, he inquires of God, it's time to bring the ark up. But instead of just doing it his own way, what seems right to him, he looks to God and he says, what do you desire for this? And this time they, they carry the ark the right way. And he actually says in verse 13, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up in the first place that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. We did not inquire. You know how we've done church for so many years. We've had traditions handed down to us for decades. And we do them, I wonder how many times because we've inquired of the Lord afresh, and how many times because that's what we do. God's not saying he's going to turn everything over and, and make something different every week, like, oh, you never know what to expect, kind of thing. But what he wants is the humility and the reverence that we would not treat him like he's our plaything, but we would treat him like he's our complete king. Mm-hmm. After this, we see that David's wisdom begins after the fear of the Lord. Wisdom reveals itself in that he inquires of the Lord. He puts God first. You've forgotten your first love. Look at how far you've fallen, repent and do the first works. It's what Jesus says to the Ephesian church. Consequence of David's right action, his fame spreads. God is listened to and honoured. The correct procedure is adhered to. There's a humility and a recognition of failure. And that leads to rejoicing but it also leads to resentment because as the ark is coming in to Jerusalem David is so pleased he's so overjoyed I think he's overjoyed because nobody died (laughs) on the way I think that's part of it yes I must have got it right this time Lord but I think he's also overjoyed because the presence of God is there in the way that God wants it to be there not in the way that David decided for his own fellowship and so he's over the moon, he's chuffed to bits, and he's dancing around like a loony. It says, in fact, that he's undignified. 
He, he basically is more or less unclothed at this point, just dancing around. He's got like a sheet wrapped around his loins, you know, and that's it. And he's jumping about. And you see the difference here because the first time when he put the ark of God on a cart, he was wearing his fine robes of a king. And this time, the ark is coming in as God intends it to, the presence of God as he intends it to. And what does David do? He becomes as naked before the Lord. His pride is gone, his humility reigns. Sometimes we need to strip off some of the things that hinder us from seeing God for who he is and for giving him his rightful place. When he's dancing about like a loony, his wife, Michael, looks at him. And she's angry. She resents him. She's kind of sneering as he's coming up the road again. What an idiot. What's this guy doing? He's behaving so strangely. What on earth has got into him? When we find that the presence of God is drawing near, it's either going to cause praise or it's going to cause problems. Yeah. Yeah. When we feel that presence of God, listen, flippancy leads us to inquire of others. Fear leads us to inquire of God. Flippancy leads to folly. Fear leads to wisdom. Flippancy leads to anger and arrogance, whereas fear leads to confidence in Him. Flippancy leads to self sufficiency, but fear of the Lord leads to surrender. Flippancy leads to brokenness. Fear of God leads to blessing. Flippancy uh, leads to problems. But fear of the Lord leads to progress. Flippancy leads to our way. Fear leads to his way. Flippancy leads to resentment. Fear leads to rejoicing. And then flippancy leads to fear, ironically. But fear leads to praise. If we've not got cause to be afraid of God, it's perhaps it's because we firstly don't fear Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. That's Proverbs 1.7. Uh, it's understood by wisdom, Proverbs 2, uh, 1 to 5. Uh, and is in fact the beginning of wisdom itself, Proverbs 9, verse 10. When we fear God, we seek Him, not for what we can get out of Him, but for who he is. When we fear him, uh, we seek him and we find him. When we find him, he comforts us and says, do not be afraid because you found me. And there's nothing bigger or more fear-inducing in this entire creation. And if I'm for you, then who on earth? Stand up. Who could you be? You see, we don't like the idea that God is to be feared. But if God isn't to be feared, then why would the devil... Be worried about him. If God isn't to be feared, then why would we be in this room right now on a Sunday morning? And not just out on a jolly doing our own thing. If, if, if he isn't to be feared, then how on earth is it that a man dying on a cross somehow makes you free from your sin? If he isn't to be feared, how is it that he's created this entire universe and prepared a place for you. 
God is to be feared. But it's not, it's not this thing like our misconception of fear. I, I feared my stepfather because he was a brute. I feared him because he was out of control. I feared him because he didn't have my best intentions in his heart. I feared him because he was not for me. He was against me. And the thing is, I fear God, but he is for me and not against me. He says that in me you are more than a conqueror through Christ. He says that in me you have forgiveness, you have redemption, and I am sanctifying you. I am changing you. You're not good enough, but I am making you good enough. I've started with this unconditional love. That's where God starts with you. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, how you've let him down, how you've let anybody else down. It doesn't matter. Because when you come to this God and you fear him, you find that he chucks this love on you that is so unconditional. He says, you're my precious jewel, you're my trophy of grace and I will do literally everything. I will hang myself on a cross in order that you can have freedom and forgiveness and restoration in your life. But let me tell you, that's the starting point for God's love is unconditional. But the moving, working, powerful love that carries on in our lives is very conditional because it's on the condition that he is sanctifying us that's conditional but the condition depends upon him and not on me I feel like I'm just getting started (laughs) I'm going to have to ask you guys to come up uh, if that's alright and just start I really don't want you guys to go away from here today thinking that, that God is an ogre, that he's a monster. There are monsters, there are ogres. The Bible terms them as, as the forces of Satan, the powers and principalities, the dominion of darkness, demons. There are ogres out there and they want to devour you and swallow you. And it even says that Satan himself is like a roaring lion. See, he emulates God. He's like a roaring lion, but instead of him roaring victory over you, he's roaring to devour you. And he's roaring because he wants you terrified of his voice. But I know lion that's bigger. You see, you've got Mufasa, and then you've got Scar. And Scar's basically a little wimp compared. And Scar kills Mufasa. Sorry, I'm getting into like again. That's just not right, is it? Scar killed Mufasa, if you're into the Lion King. I've really got that much into it, by the way. It just struck me as a thought. Just like the devil thought that he had killed the king of the universe. But the king of the universe is bigger, stronger, his roar is louder. And it's going to be louder still. When that lion roars, that makes me a bit nervous. But it also tells me that he's for me, not against me. And so I don't want to live my life kind of just trying to put God into a box of how I want him to be. God, please give me some nice food today. God, please give me a nicer house. Please, God, make my work better. Please, God, help me get a better salary. Please, God, uh, help me find that, that girl, that boy. Please, God, help me to, to sort my pension out. Please, God, help me to do this and all that and the other. And he's not against that stuff. But this is the thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then those things are added to you. If I'm coming to him and asking him to pay out like a cash machine, then I'm not seeing God. I'm seeing TSB. Yeah. 
And I don't want TSV. I couldn't care less. Take the world. Give me Jesus. If that's you today, if you want to say that, take the world. Give me Jesus. Let's stand together. Lord, we... You're worthy of such reverent respect because you could crush us in an instant. You could destroy us right in this moment. We, we, if you chose for us not even to leave this building, that would be so. So we do fear. But God, in perfect love, there is no fear. It drives out the fear because what we see first above the fear is the love of God. And the peace of God that passes our understanding. We don't want to be flippant with you, God. But equally, we don't want to quake in the corner. We want to rise up knowing that if the lion is roaring, then we're going to roar with him. Fear of the Lord is going to bring courage in this place. Because there's nothing else worth fearing. There's no evangelistic conversation in this town that is to be had that I need to be afraid of. Even if they hit us, even if they beat us, even if they call us freaks and weirdos, even if they tell us the gospel is stupid. We do not need to fear that because we fear him whose roar is louder, who's, who's, who's more powerful, and who has already won the victory. And he's won it for us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. So we give you the glory. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.